invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 12. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? I mean, everything you do or everything you don't do that you ought to do. Why do you do it? The whole next section of Romans from 12 until the end uh, is a very practical section. It's a section that is easy to uh, apply to your own life. As you read through, you say, yeah, I get that. That looks pretty simple. Uh, It's not hard. And it's interesting because it's very uh, practical, and yet we seem to think that Romans chapter 1 through 11 is not as practical. That it's very doctrinal or very teaching, very theological. But it is necessary for our souls, 1 through 11. And you wonder, when Paul's writing this letter to Rome, why did he take so long to get to the practical? Like, don't we just want to know why to do what we do and and how to do it? Paul tells us how to live as Christians. Well, why did he take so long to get there? It's so necessary, as we will see this morning, that he covered what he did in chapters 1 through 11. It is so necessary to have a foundation that is unshaken, a foundation in the gospel, and mainly in the mercy of God. It's so necessary, or else your practice, what you do and how you live, will be off. doesn't matter how how you do it, or what you do, it'll be off, if you don't have the foundation that Paul has already laid for us. I'm going to read Romans chapter 12 in its entirety, and we will look at verse 1 together this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy, if service in serving, the one and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil 
with good. See how practical, how easy that is. You say, yeah, I, I get that. I see like a giant list of things to do. A giant list of things not to do. But the reason we do them is so important. If you do it for the wrong reason. It's interesting, right? Because you even think about your own children and obedience. And they obey you because you told them or they obey you because they love you and they think it's best for them. Or your spouse. Why do they do the things they do for you? If your spouse buys you flowers because you told them to, it means a lot different than if they just buy you flowers because they wanted to. There's a big difference. The motivation why you do something really does matter. As we're going to get into this living out the Christian life, as we'll see in Romans chapter 12, you can go and you can say, all right, I'm going to start chipping away. But you must ask, well, why do I do this? Why do I contribute, as it says to contribute? Why do I serve? Why do I bless and not curse? Why do I associate with the lowly? Do we know the reason? Let's keep our hearts in check and our hands in check. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you, By the mercies of God. The mercies of God. I want to recount for you a story and a dinner party that Jesus was at. Because it will illustrate for us what is so noticeable about the mercy of God. And what it has to do with our motivation for doing things. In Luke chapter 7, you can turn if you'd like to and follow along. Luke 7 It starts at verse 36. It's a story of Jesus being invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house named Simon. Luke 7 and 36 says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she had learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, "Um, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You notice the two types of people highlighted in this account. Simon the Pharisee and woman the sinner. Jesus points out how each person has treated him at this dinner. And he gets to the heart of it. Why does this woman act this way? Why does she love him more as evidently seen in her behavior? It's because she understands the magnitude of mercy. She understands the magnitude of mercy. This woman is acutely aware of her situation, her unworthiness, her wretchedness, her lostness. And by God's grace, she has come to realize the measure of mercy that God has poured out on her in abundance. That this Jesus, the forgiver, has had abounding mercy toward even her. She gets the magnitude of mercy. Jesus finishes by saying, He who is forgiven little, loves little. She knows that she was forgiven a lot. A lot. So therefore, she would love a lot. Do you see the connection to this verse in Romans? Why I went there. The section we are entering into in this book is all about what we will do and how we will act. What we will do and how we will act, which way we will live towards God and towards other people. The commands we will obey or disobey. And Jesus himself says in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey my commands. We've just been reminded in this account of this woman that Jesus sees what she is doing and tells us that her love for him is significant. He sees what she's doing and says, her love for me is significant. He tells us that the measure of her love toward him is directly connected to her grasp of the magnitude of his mercy. I'll say it again. He tells us that the measure of her love toward him is directly connected to her grasp on the magnitude of his mercy. The more she gets his mercy, the more she loves him. The more she loves him, the more she's going to serve him. That's the connection. So when we're entering into this section in Romans about serving and about doing, about acting, about living, where's the other piece in that trail? Are you doing it out of love? And how much love? And do you realize the foundation ought to be the mercy of God. He says in verse 1 in Romans chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And then he says, do this. Live this way. I appeal to you by mercies. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I'm coming alongside of you. And I'm calling you to consider the magnitude of God's mercy. And he says, do not in this, you can, you can conclude, he says, do not do anything instructed here or elsewhere in the Bible without a firm grasp on his mercy. Else you do it with the wrong motivation and it'd be useless and vain altogether. You want the heart of every motivation ought to be his mercy. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you to live this way, to do this thing, to be this person by God's mercy, because of God's mercy. He tells us that the mercy of God changes you. It changes you. Jesus shows us that the mercy of God increases or decreases your love for him in your serving him. The more you understand how he has been merciful towards you, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you will live for him. That's the whole flow. It's amazing, because then you can stop and think, well, I don't really do much for God, or I don't serve him, or I don't know the motivation. Just back up. Like, do you love him? And you can say, yeah, I love him, but it's not as much as I should. And I admit that so often in my own prayer life. I don't love God like I should. Well, how do I increase that love? By the mercies of God. Contemplate the the magnitude of the mercy that he's had towards me. Like, do I think that I was special or something? Do I think I deserve what he gave me? Do I think I deserve to live this moment? Right? It's mercy. The mercies of God change us. He had just finished saying at the end of Romans chapter 11 and verse 30, he says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God. He says, but now. So there's been a shift. But now. So you would, might expect it to say, at one time you were disobedient, but now you've started obeying. Good job. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 30 of chapter 11, you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy. You've received mercy. And that is obvious that that mercy is going to do something. You were disobedient, but now you've received mercy. Therefore, you're going to stay disobedient? By no means. No way. When you receive mercy, it is just flowing from that that you will obey God. That you will obey all he's about to command us to do. Mercy changes us. So we ought to stop and evaluate ourselves. Why do you do what you do? Is it because you care too much about what people think? Is it because of a sense of guilt? Is it because you have compassion? Is it because no one else will do it? Is it because it makes you feel good? Is it because you know you should? You're sitting here in church this morning. You could be a million other places. Why are you here? What motivated your decision to come? Is it that it's just what you've always done? Is it because you wanted to see the people? Is it because someone dragged you here? Is it because you uh, had to serve? Or maybe you wanted to be served? Was it to worship? To give? To hear the scriptures? To sing his praises? To enjoy his presence? Those are good things. But at the heart or the root of it, foundationally, was it because you know and have experienced the magnitude of God's mercy to you? And it's an outflow of that. That God has been so merciful to you and so you're just you're coming to him. To praise and to sing and to give and to contribute. It's because of the magnitude of the mercies of God. If Paul then here is appealing right at the beginning of this whole section where he's about to lay out practical living, he's appealing to them by the mercies of God. He either assumes that they know the mercies of God personally or that he has sufficiently shown them the mercies of God up until this point. That maybe that's why he took so long in the teaching of chapters 1 through 11 was to show them 
the mercies of God that they never would forget because if they're about to live apart from the mercy of God, then they might live askew or wasted. They might do this or do that because they have to or they must or someone else told them to do it or they don't want to be seen as a bad Christian. So that's why they're going to apply Romans 12 to their lives. No, no, he appeals to them by the mercies of God and he has sufficiently shown them so far in chapter 1 through 11, even if they weren't paying attention to their own lives, if they paid attention to this letter, they would see and behold the mercies of God. I'll summarize the mercies in four categories, which are not exhaustive, but Paul covers them in chapters 1 through end of 11. Consider God's mercies in withholding judgment. Consider God's mercies in withholding judgment. In chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Pause for a moment and hear the right anger of God against sin. The wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. Have you been ungodly? I have. Consider God's mercy in withholding judgment. Why did he not strike us? That was just chapter 1, verse 18. 1, verse 21 to 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, deceit. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They were disobedient to parents. They were foolish, faithless, heartless, rootless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's chapter 1, verse 28 to 32. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Chapter 2, verse 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 2 verse 4. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 3.18. Consider the magnitude of the mercy of God in his patience and his withholding judgment. That's mercy. And you might read chapters 1 through 3, which really highlight the sinfulness of man. You might read that for someone else. Don't. Read it for yourself. Read it with you in mind. And think, why am I alive? Why did God not strike me dead and send me to hell the minute I sinned against him and spit in his face and worship something else other than him? Why did he let me live? Consider the magnitude of his mercy in withholding judgment. 
for God to hold back one moment is mercy upon mercy. That God has not struck us down the moment we worship created things is mercy. That God has not let his anger immediately fall on us when we expressed hatred towards him is mercy. That he has withheld death and the eternally damning consequences when we've been faithless, disregarding his trustworthiness. He did it in mercy. Have you considered his mercy? Have you looked at what you deserve and what he has given you instead? You deserve death and punishment like that. But he's given mercy. He's given mercy. He said that his kindness and his patience is meant to lead you to repentance, to reject that way of living. All the things that you did towards God, the hate that you showed towards God, he has been merciful towards. Man, how, how easy is it for you to restrain yourself when someone spits in your face? Or someone slanders your name? Someone accuses you of wrong? Someone is mean to you? Someone is wrong towards you? How easy is it for you to withhold your judgment on them? For you to withhold bitterness and withhold anger? It's impossible. But yet God in his mercy has done that towards you and toward me every single day, multiple times a day. Consider the magnitude of his mercy in withholding judgment. The second category is consider the magnitude of his mercy in justification. You and I have a sin record as long as the planet is wide. We have a record of sin that stands against us. Consider his mercy in justification. In wiping that record clean. Chapter 4, verse 24 and 25 says, It will be counted to us who believe in him. His righteousness will be counted toward us who believe in him. Who raised Christ from the dead. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. For the law and prophets bear witness to it. But this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 25. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 5 verse 6. God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 5 verse 8. Consider the magnitude of the mercy of God in justifying, in clearing, in accepting the guilty sinner through the gruesome and lonely death of his own son. Have you considered this mercy? amazing. The only way our our normal debts are taken care of is by us slugging away. 
But the greatest debt we ever had was dealt with by Christ. He justified us. He took our record of wrong and gave us his record of righteousness and said, There. I love you. There. He died in our place. Condemned. He stood. So that we might be justified before God and, and stand in grace, it says. Have you considered the magnitude of that mercy? You don't deserve to have your record wiped clean. Not even one thing. It doesn't matter how much good you've done. It does not outweigh or erase the past or the bad. It doesn't. But God has so done it by his own son and the blood of Christ. Have you considered it? Do you know it personally? Does this mercy change everything about you? Does it change your approach to God? Does it change your approach to people? This mercy towards you in justification. Thirdly, consider the mercy of God and the magnitude of it in giving us life. We were dead, right? We were spiritually dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians tells us. Spiritually dead. But yet, it says, for if one man's, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigned. But life, life can be had through Jesus Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Chapter 6, 6 and 7. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ our Lord. 6.23. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 7 verse 4. Consider the magnitude, the value of life, the purpose of life that He's given you. The stewardship of your freedom and the time He has granted you is all mercy. It's mercy. Why, why do we deserve life? We don't. Not a single one of us deserves another breath. But more than that, why do we deserve spiritual life? None of us. None of us do. Consider the magnitude of mercy in God giving you life and freedom. You are a slave to sin. And he sets you free. That's life. Consider the magnitude. And the fourth is consider the magnitude of the mercy of God in delivering us. Delivering us. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verses chapter 8, 1 and 2. 
For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 8.15 God has delivered you from such a dark circumstance. Circumstance that we placed ourselves in. And He, in His mercy, has delivered us through the death of His own Son. God has delivered us. God has given us life. God has granted to us justification. And God has indeed been patient towards us in withholding justice. Consider the magnitude of the mercies of God. Those things change the way you live. They change the way you live. All that God has done for you in Jesus Christ changes how you do it, and why you do it. So when you think about your life of obedience or disobedience, why do you obey God? Why do you obey the commands of the Bible? Is it because you don't want to feel bad? Is it because you want to avoid some judgment? Is it because other people will notice? Why do you obey God? Paul tells us at the beginning of chapter 12, I appeal to you, By the mercies of God. Consider the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, live in this way or that way. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to meditate on the magnitude of those mercies. Realize all that you deserve, all that you were trajectory towards, all that is meant for you, and realize what God has done for you. How he's withheld judgment from you. How he's taken away your record of sin. How he's set you free from slavery. How he has delivered you from death. Consider the magnitude. He who is forgiven little loves little. How much are you forgiven? Do you spend time meditating on that? And not just talking about like the time you accepted Christ as your Savior. What about yesterday? Consider the mercies of God on you yesterday. Consider the mercies of God on you tomorrow. Consider it. So that you might realize how much you were forgiven, how much mercy God has on you. He who has much mercy loves much and therefore lives much for God and His glory. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, consider the magnitude of these mercies. Evaluate why you live doing and not doing certain things. And have you considered the mercies of God? Let's pray. Oh God, you are you're not like us. God, we recognize that if, if people are to sin against us, we are not able to restrain our ourselves, our nature of of bitterness maybe, of anger, of retaliation. God, we need forgiveness for that because it does not reflect who you are. We thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ, that for each one of us, not because of what we have done, not because of what we are able to do or accomplish or anything, but by grace alone, undeserved, we may come to you 
for mercy. We are poor, begging sinners in need of mercy. And God, we are so glad that you are mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Would you help us, O God? Help us to recall, help us to recount in our own lives, not just at one point, but daily, to consider the magnitude of your mercies. Realize how much we are forgiven so that we might love you better. God, we want to love you better. And we want to live for you better as well. So God, would you help us? We need you to recall to our minds to show us the depth of our, our, our mire that we were in. To show us our circumstance, but also to show us how great your salvation has been. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. That it, that it points us to your mercy again and again and again. And God, we are so glad to have heard it this morning. We want you to receive all the glory from our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.